Thank you, church, for that rousing welcome. Um, I think I might prefer that you clap afterwards. You don't quite know what's coming, do you? Good to be with you this evening. And uh, thank you for treating my daughter well while she was here on your pastoral staff for, what, five years? Was she here for five years? Um, she speaks very highly of you all, so thank you. We, um, uh, as parents, we were concerned for her, of course, leaving home and coming to, to minister in a different state. But uh, you looked after her well, so we thank you. And thank you particularly, Ben. She really appreciated your leadership too. Okay, can I pray as we come to God's word? Uh, our God and Father, we thank you for your word because it is truth. It's reliable. It's all the divine revelation that we need. And our prayer is that you might help us to wrestle well with what it is that you've said. Our prayer is that you might help us to bring our lives into line with what you desire for us as revealed in the scriptures. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been said that there are basically two types of people in the world. There are here I am type people and there you are type people. So a here I am type person is the person who comes into a room and by their presence and their words, they're communicating, here I am, love me. Here I am, the party can begin. And then there are other people who come into the room and they communicate through their words and through their actions, there you are. How are you doing? Can I help you? So I'm not talking about introverts and extroverts because you can be an extrovert, come into a room and lighten it up, but still communicate, there you are, how are you doing? And you can be an introvert and come into a room and dull it down and communicate still, here I am, it's all about me. So here I am type people, there you are type people. So if you had to put yourself in one of those categories, which would it be? Now the truth is that we're a mixture of both. Okay, that's the truth. Sometimes we're better at being there you are type people, sometimes we're more here I am type people. But if you had to choose just one that described you, which would it be? Now my guess, which is not really a guess because I've got inside knowledge, is that really most of us tend to be here I am type people. Because the Bible says that our hearts are deceitful. Uh, The Bible says that we struggle with selfishness that we tend to be self-focused and we see things from our own perspective and we tend to work towards what works best for us. So most of us tend to be here I am type people. Now, I believe God, particularly when it comes to the salvation of others, is very much a there you are type person. And he wants us to move from being here I am type people to there you are type people. He's always desired that for believers. Now, the ancient people of Israel were created as a nation in order to represent God to the world. If you remember the story of the Tower of Babel, that's where we believe all the nations and the cultures have come from, all the different language groups, Genesis 10 and 11. And because of judgment, God spread them all over the world. But right away after that, in Genesis 12, God raises up a man through whom he creates a nation to reach all those nations that are scattered. That man is Abraham, 
And the nation that comes from him is Israel. And so Israel was meant to be a billboard that said, God is real, God is good, God wants you to be reconnected with him. Israel as a nation were meant to be there-you-are type people, a there-you-are type nation. However, as time went on, the Old Testament tells us that Israel failed pretty miserably at that task and they actually became very self-focused very introverted and very much about themselves. So if you have your Bibles, can you turn with me please to the book of Jonah? To the book of Jonah, because I believe that Jonah represents the nation of Israel at the time of the writing of this book, and that even though I, you know, Jonah is the real person, I believe in the historicity of the book, but I think Jonah himself represented the nation of Israel. And that God, through the writing of this book, was trying to move the nation from being a here-I-am type nation to a there-you-are type nation. From having a focus on themselves to having a focus on other people, particularly for their salvation. Because they had fallen into this trap of having a very hard heart. So we're going to whiz through the book of Jonah tonight. Okay, All four chapters, but we can do it if you just hang in there with me. Ben said I've got a couple of hours, so I hope you're ready. No. We'll see how we go. So you know the story. Hopefully you're reasonably acquainted with the story of Jonah. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, he gets commissioned to go to Nineveh and he refuses. He hates Nineveh. Nineveh are Israel's sworn enemies and they are pagans. The Jews, the, the, the Hebrew people, they have the covenants, they have the promises, they are God's favourite people. Why would they have anything to do with these pagans? And so he runs away as far as he can. He's called to go to the east. He instead heads to the west jumps on board of a ship. And you'll see in verse 4 of chapter 1 that the Lord, literally it says in the Hebrew, sent a great wind onto the storm and created a great storm at sea. That word sent, by the way, is a key word in the book. You'll see that throughout the book, God sends stuff into Jonah's life in order to get his attention. Um, He's going to send this storm. He's going to send a fish. He's going to send a great east wind. He's going to send a plant. He's going to send a worm. God is sending stuff constantly into Jonah's life to grab his attention. What's fascinating is that he's on board with a whole bunch of pagan sailors, and these are seasoned sailors, and this storm is so bad that the ship is about to break up, and these sailors are fearing for their life. But have a look at what it says in verse 5. So they're throwing all the cargo over the board, But Jonah, it says, had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down and fallen sound asleep. You might have into a deep sleep in your translations. Um, Just as as a teaching thing here, in a narrative, biblical narrative, always pay attention to the adjectives. Adjectives are little words that describe nouns. They're important because the author doesn't need to use them. So if the author is using adjectives, he's doing it deliberately to add colour and and emphasis. So Jonah goes below decks. There's a huge storm on the the ocean, on on the surface. But he is down there having a sleep, just a little nap. What kind of sleep? A deep sleep, a sound sleep. He's sleeping like a little baby. God has sent a huge storm to try and get his attention. So what is this telling us about Jonah's conscience? His God conscience. See, what's fascinating about chapter 1, Jonah and the pagan sailors, is that 
The kind of behavior and attitude you'd expect from a believer is going to be evidenced in the sailors, the pagans. And the kind of attitude you expect from believers, uh, from pagans rather, is going to be evidenced in Jonah. And this is what we see. So huge storm, Jonah's having a wonderful sleep, completely unaware almost that God is trying to get his attention. They wake him up, they, they have to ply him with 20 questions to work out what's going on. Now remember, Jonah is a prophet of God, so a prophet is someone who represents God to man. And so his job basically is to be a missionary, is to be an oracle for God. And yet here he is, the guys have got to basically twist his arm to let, get him to tell them what the deal is. So eventually he says, well, look, the storm is my fault. Throw me overboard. The storm will cease. But what do the sailors do? They say, Jonah, we can't do that. We care for your soul too much. So they strenuously strive to get the boat to safety. Why? Because they care for his soul. Does Jonah care for their souls? Not one little bit. But they care for him. But the storm is too great, so they can't do that. And so very reluctantly, they do what Jonah tells them to do, and they throw him overboard, and the sea is calm. And then at the end of the chapter, uh, I believe that they came to faith. I believe we'll see these sailors in heaven and they will have one massive story to tell. So Jonah's in the fish now. And in the fish, he starts to pray. He's in there for three days, three nights. Jesus refers to that in the New Testament. And in the fish, he comes to a kind of repentance. He starts to thank God for his salvation. He praises God for his goodness and for his mercy. But what's really interesting is that Jonah's repentance here, and I put it in inverted commas, is perhaps sincere, but it's not sufficient. If his repentance in chapter 2 was sufficient, we wouldn't have chapter 4. The story would end at the end of chapter 3. So Jonah is repenting of his disobedience, but his disobedience was a result of a much deeper and more vile rebellion against God in his heart. God is after that. That's why God's going to send so much stuff into Jonah's life. That's why we have this book in our Bibles, I believe, is because God is after the source of his rebellion, not just the symptom, which was his disobedience to his call. But it's um, a wonderful prayer in chapter 2. So he's, he, he waxes lyrical, it's very poetic, it's very lovely, but it's not sufficient. Sincere, but not sufficient. And I can't help but think that, that this is an issue that we often struggle with in our Christian life. That we too often pray prayers of repentance that are sincere as far as they go. We mean what we pray but they're not sufficient because they're not dealing with the root causes of our sin. They're just dealing with the symptoms. And so lo and behold, that same sin that we're struggling with comes back again and bites us time and time and time again. And we're almost captured by that sin. We keep confessing the symptoms of that sin, but we never deal with the root cause, so therefore we never move on. And it restricts our growth as believers. That's certainly true with Jonah as we will see when we get to chapter 4. 
So this is where we need to be like the psalmist in Psalm 139. That psalm ends by the psalmist saying, Lord, search me, try me, see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a, it's a real prayer of honest vulnerability, of opening himself up, saying, Lord, my heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, I'm, I'm a rat bag at times, and I've, I've, I've done these things. I, I lose my anger too easily. I, I watch the wrong kind of thing too often. I, I gossip way too much. Why am I doing that? What is it within me that's causing me to act in these ways? And sometimes we just need to spend some time in solitude and silence where we really reflect on our heart before God rather than just saying, oh, sorry, God, did it again, and then busily move on with the next thing in our life. God, I believe, and we see this in the book of Jonah, is calling us to a repentance that is sufficient, not just sincere. All right, we get to chapter 3. So Jonah repents of his disobedience. Chapter 3, he comes to Nineveh, the great city, and he engages in his preaching ministry, if we can call it that. We only have a very brief record of of his preaching ministry. I'm sure he said a lot more than what chapter 3 tells us. But basically, all chapter 3 tells us is that Jonah walked through the streets of this huge city and said, you guys are toast in 40 days. God is going to judge you in 40 days which you might say is not the most compassionate evangelistic preaching you've ever heard. Um, He doesn't seem to be representing God's mercy and grace, as perhaps God would want him to. He's just announcing judgment. But um, let me put this this slide up for you in terms of the structure of the book of Jonah, because it's a wonderfully constructed short story. The pagans in chapter 3 are parallel with the pagans in chapter 1. So what you expect from believers, you see in the Ninevites. And the Ninevites are going to be led by their king, just like the sailors in chapter 1 are led by their captain. And even though Jonah marches through their streets and pronounces judgment upon them, the people repent. And the king says, okay, we've got judgment coming. Jonah's told us we've got judgment coming, but perhaps... If we repent and we, we are sincere and sufficient with that repentance, God will have mercy on us. What a wonderful attitude. Their hearts are broken. They are contrite. Um, verse 7, the king issues a decree. says, Do not let man, beast, herd or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? No presumption here. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And what uh, what the king of Nineveh is invoking is the Jeremiah 18.8 principle, which hadn't been written yet, but nonetheless, um, in Jeremiah 18.8, God says, if I decree that I'm going to judge a people, and that people repent, then I will relent of that judgment. And that's what they're trusting in. That's what they're hoping for. And verse 10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And I believe God saves them. So I believe we'll see this generation of Ninevites in heaven along with the sailors as well. 
which is kind of cool. And then we get to chapter 4. The story hasn't finished. If the only issue with Jonah was disobedience to his call, it would have finished by now, but that's not the issue that the book is going after. Chapter 4, verse 1. You've got another prayer coming from Jonah, which is going to be contrasted, if you like, with a prayer in chapter 2. But this one's a shorter prayer and doesn't quite have the same flowery content, if you like, or the, or the positive content as before. Chapter 4, verse 1. So the Ninevites have repented. God has um, seen their repentance and he has relented concerning the judgment. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah. It didn't just displease Jonah. Notice the, the adjective. Jonah wasn't just slightly ticked off. It greatly displeased Jonah. He was furious. And he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord. Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? This is fascinating. Jonah's quoting Exodus 34 here. He's getting his theology from Moses. How would you rate him if you were doing a theology exam on, on Jonah? How good is he in terms of intellectually understanding God? So he says here, God, you are gracious, you're compassionate, you're slow to anger, you're abundant in loving kindness, you relent concerning calamity. Out of five, how, do, how many does he get? Right. Five. He knows his theology, right? So he's got it in here, but he doesn't have it in here. The truth about who God is isn't in here. Did you notice the last verse in his prayer, by the way, in chapter 2? The last thing he says in his prayer in chapter 2 is, salvation is from the Lord. And he says it positively because he's the one who's experiencing that salvation from the fish, but he also experienced salvation from his sin. So he's happy when that salvation is his. It's, he's happy when God shows him grace and him mercy. But he's really angry when the Ninevites receive this same grace and this same mercy and this same salvation. And that's why he ran away, because he didn't want God to show his blessing on them. And so the Lord says to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry? Which is something very similar to what he said to Cain back in Genesis chapter 4. When Cain got angry that God accepted Abel's offering and not his. And so I think there's a deliberate um, allusion here. And what God is saying to Jonah is, you're just like Cain. You have murderous intent in your heart. So your issue really isn't disobedience to my call. That's just a symptom. You've got hatred and murderous intent in your heart. You're guilty of racism, Jonah. You're guilty of hatred. You're guilty of bitterness. These are the, the, the deep-seated sins that are in your life that represent, I think, the nation of Israel at the time. That's what we're going after, Jonah. But Jonah doesn't get it. Have a look at verse 5. Then Jonah went out from the city, sat east of it, 
And there he made a shelter for himself, sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. Well, what did he think was going to happen to the city? What was he waiting for? So you can imagine, he goes to the city, he sets up his deck chair, he's got his table next to him with his refreshments, and he's got a little calendar there with 40 days marked on it. And he's crossing off every day. What's he hoping is going to happen on day 40? He wants to see a mushroom cloud over Nineveh, right? He wants to see Nineveh destroyed. So he hasn't listened to God here in God's first rebuke at all. So, verse 6, God is going to give him a lesson in terms of um, what's really going on here, Jonah. Let's, Let's deal with the issue that's in your heart in the heart probably of the people of Israel. So verse 6, the Lord God appointed a plant, literally that sent a plant, and it grew up um, over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was a little bit happy about the plant? No, extremely happy, it says. Those adjectives again, they just give us wonderful colour. So Jonah is not neutral here. Jonah's emotions are engaged significantly. He doesn't just have a smile on his face because this plant is, has been given to him and is giving him shelter from the scorching wind and the, um, and the heat. He's extremely happy about this plant. He's in raptures about it. He loves it. This is great. But then verse 7, God appointed a worm. And when dawn came the next day, it attacked the plant and it withered. And then the sun came up and God appointed or he sent a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and he begged with all of his soul to die saying death is better to me than life. So God brings him back to the same point where he was when he was reflecting on what happened at Nineveh. And verse 9, God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Same question as before, but this time with respect to this little object lesson that he's given Jonah regarding the plant. And Jonah says, I have a good reason to be angry, even to death. So he's standing on his, on his principles here. He's, he's showing his integrity. Of course I have good reason to be angry. I had this wonderful plant. Oh, God, it was a lovely plant. I named it. I petted it. I sang to it. We just had this thing going. In modern times, we probably would have got married if we could have. It was a wonderful plant, God. I loved it. My emotions were engaged with this plant. And then you took it away. Of course I have a right to be angry. Ah, says God. Really, Jonah? That's fascinating. So verse 10. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. You're really emotionally engaged, Jonah, with something that is very temporal. Here today, gone tomorrow. Something for which you had no control over, really. And yet you are significantly emotionally attached to the point of death, mourning its loss. Verse 11, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hands as well as many animals? 
don't know about some of the older people here, but I grew up watching uh, Sesame Street way before it went woke. Um, and, and when I was watching Sesame Street, they used to sing this song. And it used to be, one of these things is not like the others. One of these things just doesn't belong. Trigger any memories for you? I hope the singing didn't trigger something else for you. But That's what God is doing here. He's saying, Jonah, one of these things is not like the others. Your love for the plant, your extreme out-of-controlled emotional attachment to this plant compared to my love for eternal souls. 120,000 people who will live forever, either in heaven or in hell. One of these things is not like the others, Jonah. This comparison is not equal. Don't you see my heart? I mean, you know my heart intellectually, right? You quoted Moses, Exodus 34. You know I'm compassionate and gracious. I relent concerning calamity. Can't you see the difference, Jonah? And then what makes this amazing short story even greater is Jonah chapter 4, verse 12. Can someone just read that out for me, please? Verse 12. Oh, there's, there's no verse 12. Right, there's no verse 12. So how did Jonah respond? We're not told, are we? Now, look, I, I hate to break this to you, but Jonah has passed away. Jonah is dead and he's been gone for a long, long time now. But guess who isn't dead? The readers of this story. We who are listening to it. And so what the writer has done by not telling you how Jonah responded is brought this story right into the present. So the issue isn't how did Jonah respond. The issue isn't even how did Israel respond because we know how they did respond. They didn't respond positively and so God is now using the church to be the billboard to the world. Whereas beforehand he was using Israel to be the billboard for him to the world. So the question from Jonah 4 verse 12 is what about your heart? What about my heart? I heard a preacher um, give this statistic, so I can't validate it, but it sounded really good, so it preaches really well. I'm going to give it to you. He said that Christian, evangelical Christians spend more money on entertainment than they do on missions. We probably could believe that to be true, couldn't we? But if it is true, shame on us. Shame on us. Because what are we doing? We're saying, oh, we're emotionally attached to the comforts of this life, that which is here today and gone tomorrow. It's all about my entertainment. It's all about my success. It's all about me, me, me. Here I am. As opposed to missions, evangelism, the cause of the gospel, it's all about others, those kids who are coming for Kids Club. It's about them hearing the gospel because they're souls that will live forever. So if we wrap this up, how do you live by faith in a self-focused world? A big idea. Have God's heart for people's salvation.
And how do we do that? If we have God's heart for the salvation of others, that should be reflected in our prayers, our giving, and in our priorities. So God, as we had in our reading in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he desires that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. Is that really our desire as well? 